Job chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Satan's second assault, health gone. Look, chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, Ben Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and he still holds fast to his integrity? Although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. You can almost hear the And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity and had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, which by the way, that gives us the clue. If you ever get asked the question, who's the the smallest man in the Bible? You can say, Bildad. How tall is he? Shuhite. Just kidding. That's... Maybe not the right answer. Okay. Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his grief was very great. Remember the book of Job begins with a description of a man's faith. And family, prosperity, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, and we might even argue undeservedly, all hell breaks loose. Adversity. Verse 1, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before God and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Once again we're reminded that Satan either has or had access to heaven. People will invariably ask me, does he still have access to heaven? My answer is we have no reason to believe that he doesn't have anything other than access. Apparently there's some sort of conversation that takes place in heaven. Same scenario. Heaven's counsel. Satan shows up. God's inquiry. Satan's challenge. God's acceptance. Job's calamity. It's almost like a repeat of chapter 1 except for one difference. The Lord adds the information about Job's integrity. 
It says in verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Most people believe that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter makes his observation in chapter 5, verse 8, where he says, I'm in James. No wonder it's not there. I know you're thinking, I thought you could just do it like right off the top of your head. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Peter was familiar with the passage. He understood the adversary, the challenge. And so in verse 2, the words sound very familiar because they are. Satan roams to and fro. What is Satan doing? He's looking for opportunities to destroy people's life. He's looking for opportunities to cause pain and suffering. He wants to both hinder and hurt God. And the best way to hinder and hurt God is to hurt you. And you'll note in verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? He answers, going back and forth. He answers as if nothing has happened, like all of the events in chapter 1 never really happened. And because he's a liar and a thief and a destroyer, he does so without shame or excuse. And this is the repeated testimony of the scripture. The repeated testimony of the scripture, as cliche as it sounds, is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And Satan despises you and hates you and has a miserable plan for your life. And so, in verse 3 it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? I know those of you who are on the earth going, (laughs) especially as you read the words, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Tom, James, June, Sheila, Ralph? You look around the room and you go, Have you considered my servant and you fill in your name and you go. It's a test that I don't welcome at this particular moment. But he says that there's none like him on the earth. We have every reason to believe it's true. A blameless and upright man. One who fears God and shuns evil. Same things in chapter 1 that we've already looked at. And still he holds fast to his integrity. That's the new information. Although you incited me against him to destroy him. Look what it says. Without cause. Remember part of the purpose of the test was to prove that Job wasn't the way that that God said he was. Once again the Lord describes his character. Blameless, not sinless. Upright. One who fears God. One who shuns evil. Now I want you to think about this because I don't want you to lose sight of what's happened. Remember he has already lost all of his possessions and all of his children are dead. And they're still having this conversation. In other words, in the first chapter they're talking about a man with prosperity. Now they're talking about a person in adversity. What does both the prosperity and the adversity have in common? He remains blameless. He remains upright. He remains a man who fears God. He remains a man who shuns evil. He remains a man who, who holds fast to his integrity. What does he have life? What does he have left? According to God, blamelessness, uprightness. He fears God. He shuns evil he has his integrity from the earthly perspective what does he have a wife a few friends and his faith 
Job has passed the first test. And I want you to think about the convocation that's taking place in heaven. As the angels are looking at Satan and smiling. As the angels affirm that his test has miserably failed. Part of what you need to ask yourself at this point is this question. What does it mean to hold one's integrity? Because as you begin to ask that question, what does it mean to maintain my integrity? And you know what the word integrity means. It, it, it comes from a root word, integer, which means singularity. It means unity. Your integrity is who you are fundamentally, what you really believe about yourself and your circumstances. And the moment you begin to ask and answer the question, what does it mean to hold your integrity? The next question that you need to ask is, Am I holding my integrity? Am I reflecting my deeply held convictions about God, about Jesus, about the gospel, about the Bible? But Satan, the accuser, the adversary, is going to pursue his wicked goal. He wants to see Job crack. He wants to watch Job crumble under the weight and the burden of profound suffering. The Satan is convinced that Job has a threshold. That once you cross that threshold. He will renounce God. And he'll abandon faith. And look what the Lord says. To destroy him. Without cause. This should cause each and every person also to think. When the Lord says to destroy him without cause. That sometimes judgment involves cause and sometimes judgment does not involve cause and that we're making a very serious mistake when we look at the affliction and the pain and the suffering of any person who happens in our path and we come to the conclusion that they must have done something wrong because it means that you think you know more than you could possibly know do you really have the ability to peek into another person's circumstance to peer into their heart, to know their motives. If Job teaches us anything about suffering, and it's going to teach us a lot about suffering, that there is a kind of suffering that takes place without cause, unprovoked. All pain and suffering cannot be categorically linked to some sin or failure on the part of the person experiencing that pain and suffering. So again, for the person who says, what did I do? Why me? We tend to think that there's a direct correlation between sin and suffering. We know what the Bible says, that what a person sows, that also they reap. And we know that there's a, there, that there's a truism involved with that, that often there is a correlation between doing something and then the consequences of the thing that's happened. But Jesus seems to say, even though that's true, it isn't always true. In John's gospel, Jesus is asked about a man who's born blind. You know the story in John's gospel, chapter 9. He is approached. Jesus is asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you remember Jesus' reply, neither. And then Jesus goes on to explain. He doesn't say it's his mother or his father or himself. Jesus' explanation is the reason why this man was born blind was so that the work of God should be made manifest in him. The problem with that statement? Some people don't accept it. That's not a good enough reason for them. When Jesus himself says so that the work of God can be done and so that the glory of God could be made manifest in them, there's two kinds of people. The kind of people who say, God has no right to do what he wants in my life. And the person who says, God has every right to do whatever he wants in my life. And by the way, you fall into one of those two categories. 
You may do it imperfectly, you may do it incompletely, you may do it inconsistently, but at some point you will say God has every right to do whatever he wants in my life and you will whisper in your, under your breath when no one else is looking, why are you doing this? What were, what were you thinking? Look at verse 4. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Apparently, skin for skin is an old Middle Eastern proverb. Different Bible teachers and commentators have come up with all kinds of ideas of what this may mean. It may mean that Satan accuses God of testing Job only at the most superficial level. And therefore there's a superficial response. And so in effect Satan is saying you've only tested at the most fundamental level, at the most superficial level. But if God allows Job to be tested where it really counts, he will cave in. Now I want you to note just a couple of things right off the bat. Do you think Satan is a person who likes to admit failure? Yeah, he's not that kind of a guy. He doesn't like to admit failure. And by the way, Job has passed the first test. So who does Satan have to blame? He blames God. He blames God. That's what he says. Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. He's blaming God. He's saying, you didn't let me test. Give him a sufficient test. Satan uses this as the excuse for his failure and the basis in order to provide the next challenge. And the reason why this becomes important to each and every person who's listening to me is because, number one, Satan refuses to admit his failure. Number two, he blames God. Number three, he celebrates his own self-centeredness. See, you're laughing because of the truth of what I'm saying. You see, if you are a person who won't admit failure, if you are a person who has a tendency to blame God, if you are a person who celebrates you, that the world revolves around you, the sun comes up because you're there. It goes down because you're there. The government has shut down in order to inconvenience you. Everything that happens, it happens to make your life easier or more difficult. In Satan's answer, there's a blatant accusation. The blatant accusation is, really, really, God, Job is selfish. Satan is suggesting that a person will give up anything and perhaps everything to save his own life. And Satan has already accused Job of hypocrisy. And now he... Accuses him of selfishness, true to Satan's nature. He continues to resist God's word, and he continues to oppose God's word. These are characteristics of Satan. Accusation, resistance, and Satan understands something. Has God wired human beings with a profound sense of self-preservation? I think that the answer is yes. Things can come knocking at the door that would cause you to want to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else, but there is something powerful inside of each person who wants to stay alive. They want to get up and they want to wake up in the morning. They don't want to die. They want to live. God has wired in us a sense of self-preservation, and that isn't a bad thing. That's a good thing. But sometimes self-preservation can go off the reservation and become a type of selfishness. And so, Satan offers a challenge. Verse 5, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely 
curse you to your face. Satan's challenge to God is go a little bit deeper. Go a little bit below the surface. Prove Job's love. Prove his faith. Prove his integrity. Satan suggests that Job has only remained faithful because the loss was limited to his possessions. But if God allows Satan to attack his person, it will fold like a cheap suit. And so Satan, we begin to understand how he works. You see, part of the the point of the passage isn't just some cosmic drama in order to cause us to think deeply and carefully. That's part of it. But part of it is also to ask and answer the question, what and who are Satan's soft targets? What does Satan target? He targets our mind with lies. He targets our bodies with suffering. He targets our will with pride. He targets our heart and our conscience with accusation. And so again, if lies are taking place in your mind, if suffering is taking place in your body, if pride occupies your heart, if your conscience is filled with accusation, it becomes a ripe playground for Satan to manipulate you and oppress you and depress you. Satan wants to keep us ignorant of God's will. And if Satan can't keep us ignorant of God's will, he wants to keep us impatient with God's will. I know God's will, and I want it now. If Satan can't keep you ignorant of God's will or impatient with God's will, then he'll try to get you to act independent of God's will. Our defenses have always remained the same. What is the powerful weapon that you have on your side? It is the inspiration and the authority and the inerrancy of God's word. It's the imparted grace of God. It's the indwelling spirit of God. It's the interceding son of God. You have resources. When the Bible says in 1 Peter... Submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee. Satan believes believers are in it for the blessing. If God's blessings dry up, so does faith, so does trust, so does love. Satan's constant accusation against you is you're just in it for the the stuff. Well, what stuff? You know, forgiveness and eternal life. Yes, we're in it for the stuff. Is it wrong for us to, be, to rejoice that we're forgiven? That we have grace and mercy and love and compassion? Is it wrong for us to think, well, you're just a Christian because you don't want to die and go to hell? You know what? I'm sure that there are people who think like that. But there came a point in my own life where it wasn't the threat of hell that motivated me. It was the possibility that God would love somebody like me, that he would forgive somebody like me, that he would have anything to do with anyone like me. You see, the book of Job invites us to consider what kind of man Job really is. And when I look at the description of Job that is given by God, have you considered him that there's no one like him on the earth? That's not me. Blameless, not me. Upright, not me. Who fears God and shuns evil. That wasn't me. That wasn't a description of my heart and my predisposition. I was everything the exact opposite of that. And so when you become a Christian, when Jesus comes into your life, when you experience his love and his mercy and his grace and his abundant forgiveness, guess what? Everything changes. 
You begin to change. You become a person who wants to do what's right instead of what's crooked. Who wants to fear God, not in the sense that I'm scared to death of God, but a reverential awe that comes upon you as you realize that a self-existent being who has created the heavens and the earth, who created human beings and who gave you the ability to think and the ability to act and the ability to love and the ability to have a relationship would want to have a relationship with you. And so the book is going to ask us and invite us To an even deeper question. It isn't just simply questions about Job. It's questions about ourself. It's what do we really believe about God? What do we really believe about blessing? What do we really believe about adversity and hardship? And so in verse 6 it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. The Lord accepts the challenge to test Job's love and faith. And Satan is allowed to strike Job's body. But there's limitations even in the acceptance of the challenge. He's allowed to strike his body, but he's not allowed to take his life. David L. McKenna writes, quote, Satan's tactic is to probe and probe until he finds the fatal flaw in a person's character that leads to sin. In Jesus' temptation, Satan comes to him three times probing for points of vulnerability, the natural drives of the body and the mind and spirit, passion, pride, Power were all projected from legitimate to sinful desires. What McKenna is saying is that the point of temptation usually comes not in something that is wrong in and of itself, but satisfying that wrong in an inappropriate way. When Satan comes to Jesus and says, You're hungry, you're the Son of God. Behold, there's some rocks here. Don't they look a lot like delicious loaves of bread? So why did you get your Jesus mojo on and then turn these rocks into bread? By the way, is it wrong to be hungry? But can you satisfy your hunger in such a way that you dishonor God? Yeah, it's called gluttony. And so this is the point that he's making. It's the probing of things that are legitimate that you're asking to become illegitimate. He writes, of course, Satan personalized his probe to appeal to Jesus' specific needs at that time and place. So it is always. Most people are selectively strong or weak in character. God knows your strengths. God knows your weaknesses. But Satan knows your strengths. And Satan knows your weaknesses. In verse 7, look what it says. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. In other words, Satan is given permission to afflict Job, not with just any kind of an affliction, but the most obnoxious, the most painful, the most pernicious that he can come up with. Satan strikes Job's body with painful boils. Again, Bible scholars have suggested, well, what is this? Is this leprosy, which becomes a type and a picture of sin? The problem with it being leprosy, of course, is that leprosy really isn't all that painful. You don't feel anything, really. Is it elephantiasis? It's called elephantiasis. Some of you may have seen the movie The Elephant Man. Did you ever see that movie where John Hurt plays this grossly disfigured person whose body grows in grotesque ways? Whatever the illness is, some people have suggested maybe a type of lymphoma, a cancer that is profound and and, and deep. Whatever it was, it produced pain. It disfigured him. It altered Job's appearance. How do we know that? Remember verse 12. His friends are coming from a distance and they see a gross disfigured person and they don't even recognize him. 
As a matter of fact, when you look at the passage and it says, Job and struck Job with painful boils. The Hebrew words that are used that are translated painful boils describe eruptions of the flesh. Almost like a cancer-like material where the sore opens and it never closes. It's like the kind found during the Egyptians and the plagues that's later talked about in Exodus chapter 9 verse 8 through 11 and reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 27. It's some kind of gross plague-like judgment. Let me just help you think it through. The symptoms included inflamed ulcerous sores, verse 7. Persistent itching, remember the potsherd, verse 8. Degenerative changes in facial skin, verse 7 and 10. Loss of appetite, we're going to see in chapter 3, verse 24. Fear and depression in chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. The loss of strength in chapter 6, verse 11. Running sores with worms coming out of them in chapter 7, verse 5. Difficulty breathing in chapter 9, verse 18. Darkness under the eyes, chapter 16, verse 16. 16, foul breath, 1917, weight loss, 1920, and then again in chapter 33, verse 21, excruciating, unrelenting, continual pain in chapter 30, verse 17, insomnia, chapter 30, verse 27, blackened, peeling skin, chapter 30, verse 30, high fever and chills, chapter 30, verse 30. Sounds pretty bad. One Bible writer just simply said, He becomes misery personified. That's true. Take every painful thing, take every difficult thing. Take every horrible thing and then pile them one on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. I don't know if you've ever had the kind of pain where you welcomed sleep so that you could go away and somehow the symptoms of pain would somewhat subside. I don't know if you've ever had the kind of pain that was so powerful that you couldn't even sleep, that it kept you up. And that it caused sleep deprivation. The encounter prompts questions. Is Satan real? The Bible says yes. Does he have the power to afflict? The Bible says yes. Does he have power? Yes. But we should never give him more power than the Bible allows for him. Is it like mystical dualism where you have God on one side and Satan on the other and they're equal opponents in a challenge over the sanctity of your soul? Nothing could be further from the truth. Satan is a created being. The Bible does not teach that God and Satan are equal beings with equal power, but rather Satan is a being subject to God. He's only allowed to operate within the constraints and the boundaries established by God. In the end, God has the final word, and God may have placed a thermostat on your life, and he has the ability to turn the heat up or turn the heat down. But Satan cannot do more than God would allow. And in verse 8 it says, And he took for himself a potsherd. This is a broken piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament and Old Testament living knows that this is a description of the dump. This is the place where people would gather and you take all of the stuff that you've thrown away. This is the place where the garbage and the waste pile high. Warren Wiersbe writes about it. He says, quote, so abhorrent was Job's appearance that he fled society, Job 19, verses 13 through 20. He goes outside of the city. He sits in an ash heap. There the city's garbage is deposited and burned, and there the city's rejects 
necks live, begging alms from whomever will pass by at the, ha- at, at the ash heap. Dogs fight over something to eat, and the city's dung is brought and burned, and the city's leading citizen is now living in abject poverty and shame, unquote. It's hard for us to understand this dramatic difference. There's a tiny taste that's given to us as we think of Rob Blagojevich as the governor of Illinois. He's living large. He's living the fantasy. He's the governor of a great state. He has power and authority. And now, governor, I know that someone's bringing you this tape, and so we just all wanted to say hi. But again... He knows. He knows what it's to be at the very, very top. And he knows what it means to be at the very, very bottom. It's one thing to be characterized as blameless and upright. One who fears God and shuns evil. And it's another thing to have to suffer the consequences of very bad choices and very bad decisions. But do you know what? Whether you're blameless or to be blamed, whether you're upright or downright, (laughs) whether you've done everything right or whether you've done everything wrong, there's a God who's still in control. It begs the question, why? Why, Job? No better person lived in his generation. He is upright and blameless. He loves and sacrifices for his family. He provides meals and jobs for hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. He works hard. He is faithful to God. Job is like a little cottage industry. Everyone who came near to him was clothed and fed and encouraged. And now he experiences mind-numbing tragedy, unspeakable humility, humiliating, crippling pain. Having seen that vision, now read verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Don't listen to her. She's a witch. I'm not a witch. I'm his wife. (laughs) You read this, and what do you think? What are you thinking? I usually don't like to exercise my psychic powers but I'm going to just for a moment. (gasps) You're thinking, I don't blame her. I don't blame her. Think about it. I know what you're thinking. Hey, wait a minute. She's lost 10 of her children. She's lost all of her possessions. How do you process the bitter, stinging rebuke? Augustine called her diabole, agerex, which is... Latin for the devil's advocate. By the way, that's where we get that term. The devil's advocate. Chrysostom called her the devil's best scourge. In other words, out of all of these things that have happened that have whipped him, that have hurt him, that have afflicted him, that now he takes this woman, his wife, the mother of his ten children, and uses her as a scourge. Calvin called her organum, satani. That's, again, another Latin word for the embodiment of Satan. Satan uses suffering and affliction. Do you think Satan also uses people to hurt us? What do you think? Can Satan use a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, someone who we grew up with, who we came to love and trust? Is it possible... That Satan can use people to test us. You know what the the real problem becomes? We know that God wants to 
crush us like grapes so that we can be wine and bread. In order for the grain to become bread, it has to be crushed. In order for the grape to be drunk, it has to be squeezed. And we don't mind so much if God's doing the squeezing, if it's God's toes that we feel crushing us. But what about if it's your husband? What if it's your wife? What if it's your children? What if it's your boss? We don't want God to use those people to hurt us. But sometimes he will. Mrs. Job has lost ten children. Should we give her a name? We'll call her Mrs. Job. Does Mrs. Job have wealth and prestige? She had it. Is she equally traumatized? Did the loss of everything and the loss of her children have some effect on her? I think so. Is she experiencing grief? Is she in a weakened emotional state? Security is gone. Weakened emotional state. What has happened to her friends? Where is her support? What is her current status? Destitute. Shamed. She is the wife of the most hurt person ever. But she's also lost her companion. There's no more romantic evenings out. There's no quiet lunches at Chick-fil-A. There's no joyous conversations. There's no long walks by the beach. There's no pina coladas or getting caught in the rain. Question. Does this excuse her bitterness towards God? Does this make it right for her to suggest that God give up or that Job give up, that he curse God and die? What's really going on? Does she simply want the suffering to stop? Is she saying, look, whatever kind of God God is, he's not a God who's worthy of honor and he's not worthy of praise and he's not worthy of sacrifice. She's willing to dishonor and disobey God. I want you to think it through. What is happening? What would prompt her to say this? And what is the hope that she has in saying it? She has in part the hope that the suffering will stop. That it will stop. That the pain will go away. That the suffering will go away. That the humiliation will, will go away. We can sympathize with her grief. And we sympathize with her agony. We sympathize with her shame. But, but there's one thing that her example does. That each and every one of us should embrace. From her example, we discover at least one thing that we must never do. And that's encourage people to give up on God. To give up on their faith. To give up on Christ. You see, when a person is, is experiencing a difficult and a painful situation... You need to guard your words, and instead of blaming or shaming, sometimes the right thing that you need to do is listen. Bring kind words to the table of affliction. In hard and difficult times, bring gentle doses of wisdom. Bring perspective. Bring prayer. Never, ever ask a person to compromise their integrity. I was reading a blog site today, and I... I downloaded it, and it was the confessions of an apostate. And he wrote, Christianity in all of its obnoxious denominations is illogical and irrational and unreasonable. And most importantly, it's unscientific. From mammalian parthogenesis to taking non-human animals, from repeated corpse resurrection to impossible human longevity, the particular brand of mythology is unscientific to its core. Various absurdities found in 
both the Old and New Testament simply cannot be reconciled with science-based reality and natural principles. He says, I'm an apostate. Because Christianity doesn't make sense. God doesn't make sense. A resurrection from the dead doesn't make any sense. He writes that atheism is the only consistent position with respect to faith-based religious mythology. He goes on and he writes that no God, the Christian character or otherwise, should be worshipped given the results with which we live. If Yahweh is real, then cancer and smallpox and AIDS and malaria and aphasia with which we live, or actually are all products of his cloud-enshrouded laboratory, acts of God such as Hurricane Katrina, the devastating tsunami of a few years ago, are exactly that, the life-extinguishing playthings of the creator of the cosmos. Then there's starvation and homelessness and birth defects and genetic diseases, and the list goes on and on. But you can hear the venom being spewed. You can hear the hatred, the venomous disgust, He's a God that's not worthy of praise and honor. So temporary relief seems inviting. Curse God. Give up on God. Walk away from God. Again, when you curse God and you walk away from God then you walk away from love and grace and mercy and and forgiveness and hope. It's interesting to me how people who are deeply wounded and who are deeply offended because of some tragic circumstance in their life are willing to compromise and expand the gap between the Savior and the sinner. Let me ask you something. Do you think bitterness and anger and hatred and disgust with God, with Christians, and with the Bible, does it bring peace? No, it really doesn't, does it? You want the pain to go away. Does the pain go away? When you hate God and you walk away from God and you walk away from the church and you walk away from the Bible and you walk away from his love and you walk away from his promises? No. Here's part of the point. It's never a good idea to give up what you know for what you don't know. It's never a good idea to compromise your faith because it's a strong faith and a confident trust in God. This is why it's so important. This is what brings peace. And this is what brings restoration. This is what brings wholeness and wellness and sense to the circumstance. In verse 10, he says, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Look what he doesn't say. Why don't you just cut me and pour lemon juice into the wound? This seems like that would be the perfect response. Trauma doesn't always make for wise and gentle responses. Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. You know that word foolish, by the way. It's the Hebrew word... Nabal. It's the word that is the word that describes Nabal, <laughs> the fool who, <laughs> who gave David so much problems when he was running from Saul. The word means spiritually ignorant, it means undiscerning. 
Job not only refuses the bad advice, he reproves her, reminding her that God is still in control, that Job has faith in God and he sees the big picture and the ultimate outcome. He says to her, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? But this is exactly the argument that some people will give that it makes no sense to love him. It makes no sense to trust him. It makes no sense to have confidence in him. Why? Well, because something harmful could happen to you. Life is filled with difficulty. But again, faithfulness is the path to peace and restoration. Confidence and trust is the path to wholeness and wellness. And so when he says to her, will you accept good from God? but you won't accept adversity. You rejoiced when he got you that job or that husband until you actually had to live with that husband. You rejoiced when your prayers were answered. As a matter of fact, the bitter and hurtful statement made by the wife is only matched by the gentle and wise response. In the Hebrew language, the second sentence literally reads this way, the good shall we accept from God and the trouble shall we not accept. The word order is what's important there because the emphasis is on the goodness of God. And so when the person suggests to you, God isn't good, God isn't great, he isn't gracious, he isn't merciful, he isn't compassionate, he isn't full of love, the Bible says he's all of those things and more. For every one accusation that is made against him, there are 10,000 powerful things that we can say about our God. Think about what you're saying. In essence, Job is saying, doesn't God have the right to govern the universe? She says, no. Doesn't God have a right to be in control? She says, no. Doesn't God have the right to do what he thinks best in light of his perfect wisdom and matchless majesty? She says, no. Isn't God the creator and the giver of life? She says, who cares? Isn't he the shepherd? And aren't we the sheep? Is he the potter? Are we the clay? Is he good? Yes or no? Because I guarantee you, guarantee you there's going to be someone in the not too distant future who's going to say to you I don't think God is good all the time we sing of the goodness of God we sing of the love of God we sing of his beauty and his majesty and his magnificence we sing change my heart O God make it ever true change my heart O God may it be like you The King James Version translates this, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept evil? That's a wrong translation. The New King James rightly translates this adversity. The Hebrew word doesn't mean sin. God is not the author of sin. God is never the author of wickedness or evil or sin. God is incapable of doing anything evil or sinful. Does God allow affliction? Yes. Does God allow calamity? Yes. Will God permit his saints to be tested? Yes. Every thoughtful person has asked, but when will it all end? When will it all stop? When will the pain, when will the suffering, when will the testing come to an abrupt and dramatic end? The good news is it will one day. The Bible says that Jesus Christ will rule and reign. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth and all wickedness and sin will be quarantined throughout all of eternity. It would seem that Job is unaware of the heavenly conversation between Satan and God. Does Job know that God is using Job as a weapon 
to refute Satan's lies? Not really. I think that your whole perspective might change. If you begin to consider the possibility that God is using your life to ask and answer one of the most important questions that could ever be asked and answered. Is God really good? Is he compassionate and merciful? Are his promises true? Is forgiveness and hope true? Is the gospel true? Can we love him and serve him? Is it true? And one rabbi commentator, Rashi, suggests that Job doesn't sin with his lips, but perhaps in his heart or his thoughts. But I think we go too far when we pretend to know what's in a person's mind or what's in a person's heart. The text itself says everything that he did. Look what it says. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Remember, Satan said he was selfish and that he was a hypocrite. And God said, it's not true. And then we see his remarkable company very quickly. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Timonite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, we're going to talk more about these men when we come to their conversations in chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. Suffice it to say right now, there's not a whole lot we know about Eliphaz or about Bildad or Zophar, but we're going to talk more when we come to them. The men have reputations for wisdom and wealth, and this is the important thing that you should know at this point. These aren't just three random strangers who are cheering Job on. These are wealthy men and wise men who love him, who deeply care about him. They're coming to mourn with him and comfort him. And in verse 12 it says, And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. This is very reminiscent about what Job does when he himself is exposed to the terrible loss of losing all of his possessions and then his children being destroyed. How do Job's friends express their grief and sorrow? They weep out loud. They demonstrate their grief. They demonstrate their shock. They demonstrate their sorrow. They tear their clothes to express their brokenheartedness. They throw dust in heaven to express their deep grief. What does that mean for you and me? What it means fundamentally is that even though in the ancient world this was the customary way to demonstrate grief and to demonstrate sadness. We don't have some of those same mechanisms in our own culture, and our own society. We struggle with how to demonstrate our grief and then provide comfort. But look what it says in verse 13 real quickly. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was great. So what are we to think? Again, the friends of Job hold Job in high regard and deep respect. In what way? They perceive the extreme depth of his despair. They have a profound respect for his suffering. They sacrifice their own needs to stay with him. I don't know if you've ever stayed at a hospital for seven hours. But seven days, day and night, is a pretty long time. Dr. Roy Zuck says, sitting down in silence with him for a week may have been their way of mourning over his death-like condition. Or it may have been an act of sympathy and comfort or a reaction of horror, whatever the reason. In the custom of that day, they allowed the grieving person to express himself first. Sometimes when you're dealing with grief and you have no idea what to say, 
You have no idea what to say. Sometimes silence is the right response. Sometimes any word becomes the wrong word. Job knew that they were there. Job sensed their compassion. So what can we glean quickly? We live in a broken world. It's full of heartache and pain and trial. We experience trials. We experience setbacks. We experience sufferings. What else do we glean? Job has one test and then another test and then another test. Wouldn't it be nice if you only had one test per lifetime? But is that fair to expect that you're only going to have one test? No. Is it possible that you might have multiple testings, multiple setbacks, multiple griefs? I think the answer is yes. As a matter of fact, we experience trials and setbacks. In Job chapter 5 verse 7, it's going to read, For man is born for trouble, as sparks fly upward. And then... Of course, your first trial is rarely your last trial. And we live in a world where well-meaning people, people who love us, people who gave birth to our children or fathered our children, are capable of giving us bad advice. So what do you do with bad advice? You reject it. If someone offers you advice that contradicts the word of God or undermines the character of God, it's okay for you to say, you know, that's not true. And that's bad advice. It will always be bad advice for a person who suggests to you, don't believe the Bible. Don't believe what it says. Don't trust Jesus. It's all nonsense. And again, remember that God is sovereign. And so we have to be prepared for prosperity. A test that most of us will fail. And adversity. Oddly enough, a test that many of us will pass with flying colors. We have to be prepared for blessing as well as setback. We have to be prepared that life is unfair. On my radio program earlier, someone called and said, I don't think that God is fair. And I said, my answer might shock you and surprise you. I don't think he's fair either. If he were fair, you would rot in hell. If he were fair, every wicked and sinful person would have to die for their sins and experience eternal punishment because God is not fair, because he is merciful, because he is compassionate, because he's gracious, because he's full of love, because he is a person who knows the beginning from the end, because he knows that you are but dust. He has prepared Jesus to be your savior. It wasn't fair that he should suffer for you. It wasn't fair that he should die for you. It wasn't fair that he would have to take your punishment. And that you would get all of the benefits of Jesus. It's not fair because we deserve judgment instead of mercy. It isn't fair. We deserve hell rather than heaven. In the next 27 or 28 chapters, Job is going to open his mouth and he's going to give a speech. But it's a speech that I think each and every one of us is going to want to hear. We're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm going to have the worship team come up. There's just a couple of things that I want you to do. I just want you to hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to participate together. But let me pray for you. And then we're going to have communion. Heavenly Father... Lord, we thank you. It just seems crazy to have to thank you that you're not fair. That we have grace and mercy and love. 
we deserve punishment and we get blessing. Lord, we understand that we live in a fallen world and we understand that many people make foolish decisions and wrong choices and that people suffer and experience all kind of pain and hardship. But Lord, in a broken and a sinful world, you sent Jesus to love us, to die for us, so that we could experience grace and mercy. Lord, for the person whose heart is empty, I pray that you would fill it. And for the person whose heart is broken, I pray that you would mend it. And for the person whose heart is guilty, Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that they would want forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would confess that they're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is willing to be that Savior. Lord, I pray that in the quietness of their own circumstance that they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to you and they would cry out to you knowing that in your brokenness there's wholeness for them. In your sacrifice there's redemption and reconciliation for them. And because you experienced so much pain there's the possibility for the alleviation of pain, forgiveness, hope, new life in Christ. And so again, Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts as we prepare to take communion, as we celebrate the life and the death of our Savior, and we remember his love, and we remind each other that he's coming soon. Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.